We turn to the Word of God as we find it in Psalm 45. Psalm 45. The whole of the chapter is going to comprise our text because of its length, of course. That means we will focus on certain aspects and very brief on other aspects of the passage. And the focus will be especially upon the first part of the psalm as it focuses upon the beauty and the glory and the majesty of the promised Messiah coming who will be known as the great bridegroom. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and of aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. He is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift, even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within, her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers, or if you will, in the place of thy fathers, shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Strictly speaking, one could say this is a psalm fit for the marking of the great redemptive event of Christ's ascension. And in fact, I did use this passage a week ago Thursday in Kalamazoo to mark that great redemptive event of Christ's ascension. And for that event, this is a wonderful and most appropriate passage. But the truth is, of course, that this is a wonderful passage and appropriate for any Lord's Day you want to name throughout the whole of the year. It is never out of place to consider a passage that gives such homage and praise to the King of the Church who is our Savior and our Lord. Christ Jesus, beloved, for 2,000 years has been riding forth with his sword. Speaks here of the sword on his thigh, but also you notice in verse 4 it speaks, Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. The sword will also and also has been in his hand. And he has ridden forth for 2,000 years upon a great white steed. 
going forth conquering and to conquer. I refer you to Revelation chapter 6 and the opening of the first seal. And when the ascended Christ, the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah's tribe, given control of the whole of the history of the New Testament age, opened that first seal, the one who proceeded from that first seal was this white horse with the rider representing Christ and the gospel going forth, conquering and to conquer. And understand, beloved, when he goes forth conquering and to conquer, he doesn't just go forth conquering enemies in the sense to destroy them. You and I sit here this morning as the conquered. He does not only conquer in his wrath, he conquers in his love. And whom he so loves in the end cannot resist that love. By his love, he overpowers and makes former enemies his friend. Ever hear of Saul of Tarsus? Representing, in some ways, the whole of the New Testament church. So we turn to this psalm as it sets forth to us the glory of the Son of Man, the great Son of Man, promised to Mother Eve and the seed of Abraham and from the loins of God's servant David as well. He set forth here in his kingly glory. There's other psalms, of course, who set forth the promised Messiah as the suffering servant. Psalm 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 22, opening with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Psalms that speak of a familiar friend lifting up his heel against me to kick at me. But in Psalm 22, going on even to the, to the point where you have the railing against him as this suffering servant, and even that they, if left to their own devices, would strip me of all their clothing and cast lots over my vesture, which of course came to pass on the cross. The suffering servant, the son of man, to minister to his people as the suffering servant. But in this psalm, he is set forth as the king of glory, and as the king of glory will minister to his church and people. And in this psalm, you have the king crowned prince, I'm going to call him, riding forth to lay right of claim to the bride that he has purchased and redeemed. He rides forth, having obtained the right to take her hand and to lead her, escort her to his palace and to the banquet of love. And that's the perspective of the psalm. And with that in mind, we're going to consider this this psalm and what it teaches us about the one who is our Lord, our Savior, this great bridegroom, and why we should and are so attracted to him, and then also briefly our calling under his, his rule, his, his headship, and his spirit. I'm going to consider this passage under the theme Homage to the royal bridegroom. In the first place, the attractiveness of the victorious bridegroom. And we're going to spend at least three-fourths of the sermon on that first point because of the number of subsidiary points having to do with the identity of this great bridegroom and also what I'm going to call the character of this bridegroom that makes him so attractive. So a number of points under this first point and then briefly, the calling of the redeemed and chosen bride. This is a wedding psalm. A psalm commissioned to a man who had skill in poetry and music for the occasion of a royal wedding. Who exactly commissioned it? We cannot be sure what king for which son. But 
Likely, it was commissioned by David, not written by David, but commissioned by David as he anticipated and was even involved in the arrangement of the wedding of his son and most likely Solomon. To find someone who would compose poetry and set it to music. Because that's the heading of the psalm itself. It says to the chief musician. And then the English here has upon this shishamant men, and that literally means to the tune, they say, of the lilies, the lilies of the field. So it's going to be set to a tune, and whether that's the tune that the man composed for the occasion or was a well-known tune, it's a psalm composed to be sung to a certain tune which has to do with the lily of the valley, which immediately gives me pause. There's a wonderful hymn, you know, that lists words from the Song of Solomon. He is the fairest of 10,000 for my soul, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. Well, that comes to expression here in this psalm, you see. To be composed and then given to the sons of Korah who would sing it as a male chorus, I guess, a song of loves at the banquet and for the sake of the wedding ceremony itself. So, to be composed for that occasion, and he commissions this man of skill, and the Holy Spirit works in this man to produce this psalm we call Psalm 45. And when King commissions him to compose this song, this psalm, for the sake of that royal wedding, that man is highly honored because, of course, the importance of the occasion, the event itself, the marriage of the crown prince to the chosen and selected bride. It would be, of course, an elaborate event, and it would be the focal attention of the whole of the kingdom, whether all the members of the kingdom were invited to the banquet or not, still of great importance to the whole of the nation, this tremendous event of the, of the wedding of the crown prince to the chosen bride. But so important to the nation in the interest of the security and the safety of the nation in the future because weddings and marriages meant, Lord willing, children and especially amongst those children, another crown prince. And if you know anything about secular history, then you know that the birth of a crown prince to a royal couple was of tremendous importance to a nation. The bells would toll and ring and, and clamor and almost they would have a holiday, a day off. A crown prince had been born because if a king died without legal lawful heir, the ambitious would step in, brothers perhaps and relatives and generals, and who was now to be king and there would be unrest and uncertainty and even often conflict and civil war, and that meant death for many young men in the nation, disturbances. So the anticipation of the marriage with a view to the fruit of the marriage and the safety and the security of the kingdom in the days ahead. And I think the one who was to compose this psalm was so highly honored because he had a deep affection for the crown prince, for the one who was going to be married, having probably know, known him personally and the character of this crown prince appealing to him, a crown prince who was not conceited in his position, but who would go through the palace and know who those who were the servants and greet them with a charm and with a Smile. And so he's highly honored to drop this particular psalm and he prays, he reflects upon it, he prays to God himself, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit moves upon the strings of his heart and the fruit of the movement of the Holy Spirit as the wind upon the heartstrings of this composer results in this beautiful and wonderful psalm. 
you understand, beloved, whatever might have been the earthly occasion and event that the earthly event that occasions this particular psalm or the psalmist, the Holy Spirit has a deeper purpose in mind that reaches far beyond that of Solomon and a bride. Solomon, you know, would have been a rather good foreshadowing from a certain point of view of the great bridegroom in his wisdom and his personality and his unchallengeable abilities as he is the architect of Jerusalem and even the builder architect in some ways of the temple, which is also, of course, a picture of Christ Jesus, the temple of the living God. But a very poor picture when all is said and done. Not only a foreshadowing, but a contrast. Because Solomon didn't marry just one bride, did he? You can hardly count up in your head how many he ended up being married to or had some kind of affiliation to him. Whereas this other son of David, this greater son of David, of whom the psalm prophesies, is a one bride son of man, faithful to the one to whom he makes vows, and he loves her and her alone, and he delights in her and her alone, and will be faithful to her even unto death, which he was, God be thanked. That's the one, you see, in the end, whom the Holy Spirit has in mind as he, as the wind, moves upon the heartstrings of this psalmist, the coming of the great bridegroom in whom the church may put all her trust, far greater in every way, even from a military point of view and power, than David, who has commissioned this psalm, most likely. It helps to understand this psalm, to understand something about the marriage customs of that bygone day. And we do to a certain degree. We're familiar with the parable of Christ of the virgins, the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And those virgins, of course, were busy in the preparation of the bride as she was waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. And he was busy with his groomsmen First, there would be some banqueting and so on as guests were gathering throughout, throughout a week and already the festivities would have begun. But at a certain point, as a date had been set and the festivities had been begun, he himself would array himself with his groomsmen and they would go forth to gather the bride wherever she was waiting and had prepared herself for him. And then he would gather her and they would escort the bride-to-be with Bridesmaids, ten virgins here, five of whom in the parable, of course, were foolish and had not trimmed their lamps and were shut out of the banquet hall, but then going with that entourage to the festivities and enjoying the banquet together and having the ceremony performed, followed by ravishing his bride with his love, the consummation of the ceremony and the marriage. That's the picture here. And so he rides forth. And that's what the psalmist decides to take as his starting point. When you write a psalm, you have to decide, well, how am I going to approach this event? Write something up. And the Spirit leads him to envision this bridegroom going forth to collect his chosen bride, having obtained the right to her hand to go and obtain that bride in the sense of having her hand and escorting her to the banquet hall, what we might call the banquet hall of the, of the festivities and of the love. It is, you understand, a psalm that revolves about the bridegroom. Let's not miss that in our day and age. In a day of ceremonies, when the ceremony doesn't revolve so much, it seems, about the bridegroom as about the bride, which I'm not 
criticizing. That's just how it is. Though I must say, I have presided at a wedding in which it seemed as though the groom was nothing more than a prop as the bride made sure she came down in all her finery to the music and so on and stood. And I found then that after that was all set up, the groom came from a side door and stood, stood at her almost like a necessary prop. I suffered it, but I made sure from then on in premarital counseling to ask how the ceremony was going to go. I trust that the groom also will come down the aisle and be seen by the audience and not simply come from a side door. This groom, beloved, is the bridegroom of the church, and the psalm revolves about the bridegroom, and she has prepared herself to please him, not simply to impress an audience and guests, but she has arrayed herself to please him, because she loves him, and she knows that this bridegroom is not going to take advantage of her as she gives herself to his service and to the interest of his well-being and that of his home. He's going to honor her. He delights in her and he's going to care for her and elevate her to his own status. This kind of a bridegroom she knows she may safely entrust herself to him and seek to please him without being taken advantage of but to serve, you might say, the kingdom on his behalf and as one with him in her own manner and doing. So, this wonderful Psalm. And we read, you see, that this psalm, this, this, this bridegroom goes forth with his sword upon his thigh. I said the psalm revolves about the bridegroom, and that's altogether appropriate to consider to which bridegroom this psalm points. Christ Jesus, beloved. Without this Christ Jesus and the work of this Christ Jesus, there would be no wedding. It would never have occurred. He is the faithful one who is faithful to his word. But he takes to himself a bride who is not a virgin. She should have been. But she was not a virgin. Engaged and fell unto sin. And was defiled. And you know what Joseph was going to do to the Virgin Mary when he found that she was great with child because he was sure that she had been unfaithful to him to put her away privately. Christ Jesus, beloved, had the right to put us away, not privately, but publicly with a sentence of death and stoning due to our unfaithfulness, the bride whom he loves. But he's not that kind of a bridegroom. He made a vow this was chosen for him, and loving his own, he loved him, which is to say he loved us, even unto death. Striking thing, you know, that in the genealogies of Christ, in the gospel as recorded by Matthew, there's the name of a woman. Her name is Rahab, the harlot. He's one of the great-great-grandmothers of the Christ. You talk about one who represents the church, even the New Testament church. It's Rahab, gathered from the Gentiles, cleansed by the blood, marrying a certain Solomon, not Solomon, a certain Solomon. And then the genealogy goes on to say, and from them came Boaz in all his virtue, who of course marries another Gentile called Ruth, who also had to be cleansed for all her virtue as she comes from idolatry and so on. But that's, you see, the bride of this Christ Jesus whom he loves, faithful to her in spite of her unfaithfulness to him, and to cleanse her and to wash her and to do so in such a way that she becomes faithful to him as he was and is to her. And it's as that faithful bridegroom to collect this bride of his whom he so loved, to whom he has been faithful even unto death, that he rides forth with the sword upon his 
Phi. He goes forth triumphantly. And I underscore that, beloved. He goes forth not simply to triumph, though there will be triumphs also to which he goes forth, but he goes forth as one who has already engaged in battle and proved himself as a champion, as a captain, as a crown prince, as a mighty warrior. He goes forth, beloved, as one who has already dealt with death and the power of death on behalf of his bride. And it's a striking thing when you speak of the victory of this bridegroom over death. It's not simply in connection with his resurrection from the dead. Though in the resurrection from the dead, of course, he has a notable victory. But that victory and his power over death and what he has accomplished on the cross began already in the grave. That's a testimony of the psalm, you know, Psalm 16. Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Having to do with the body in the grave. And it's striking that in Acts chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon concerning this Jesus and why he is the fulfillment of the Scriptures and the Messiah and the one only name under heaven by which a man may be saved, he mentions a number of psalms and then in 34 of chapter 13 speaks concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said it this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And then this in verse 35, wherefore he saith also in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption having reference even to the body in the grave. Well, I suppose one could make a point preaching that sermon. There's a sense in which David himself did not see corruption because his soul was taken to heaven. But that's not the ultimate fulfillment of, of that psalm. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, died, was taken to glory, and was laid unto his father's and his body saw corruption. He died, and it wasn't very long, and the blood cells began to die and decay, and the rot set in and the decay, and bury him away in the sepulcher, for he stinketh. But he whom God raised again from the dead saw no corruption. The body of the Lord Jesus, beloved, in the sepulcher was as Daniel in the lion's den and the beasts that would devour and destroy Daniel's body were kept at a distance by the power of God, by Christ himself, really, on the basis of his death. And there was no dying of the blood cells and the beginning of the rotting of the flesh. It was as though he was asleep, pristine in that body yet. And you may be sure, beloved, that on Saturday, between the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, there were alarm, alarm bells going off in the halls of hell. Something is not happening by the power of Satan through death that normally happens. We cannot touch the body of this Jesus of Nazareth. We may have miscalculated we have not defeated him by putting, having him put to death, but we have taken him into the halls of hell and death. And now, like a mighty Samson within our very halls, he will arise from the dead and bring the whole of our edifice crashing down upon our ears. And he did, beloved. Only he did not die as Samson at that time in the temple, but he arose from the ruins, the victor or the dark domain. Another victory, beloved. Ride forth with thy throne, thy sword upon thy thigh, O mighty one. He goes to collect his bride, you see, as one who has already had victories and proved himself. And now he goes forth for more victories. And those more victories, beloved, had to do with the gathering of 
the bride. And those victories have to do with the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit who is poured out as his Holy Spirit doing and performing his will as the great son of man and the head and the bridegroom of the church. And so this church is gathered. But I want to make plain there is one other victory. Not only has he had the victory over death when he goes to gather his bride. Having arisen, beloved, he was not yet glorified fully, and for 40 days he remained in some realm between earth and heaven, invisible, appearing now and again to his disciples to encourage them concerning the resurrection and to give them directions as well. But he wasn't glorified till on the day of his ascension he appears in heaven. The disciples watch him float upwards. He's taken up into the air and disappears into the clouds. And when he disappears in the clouds, he appears in another realm. He steps, as it were, through the veil from the earthly and the physical to the heavenly and the spiritual. And when he appears in heaven itself, the great shout goes up as they welcome their Lord who has appeared in the heavenlies, their champion and their savior and their redeemer. Worthy is the Lamb. And immediately, Christ Jesus goes to work, beloved, and he gathers the angels under Michael, and they accomplish something in the renovation of heavenly, in the preparation for the fullness of his bride. And you read of that in Re Revelation chapter 12. This is what we read in Revelation chapter 12, this great wonder in heaven. And there's another wonder and a great red dragon. And you have this woman being with child. And then you read this in verse 5 of chapter 12. She brought forth a man child, the son of man, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. The woman, New Testament church, goes into the wilderness that they should feed there for a long time. There's war in heaven. This is what I'm getting to. There's war in heaven. What happened between Ascension and Pentecost? Something beyond our comprehension, but a war in the realm of the spiritual. The angels gathered up under the great captain Christ Jesus, the Son of Man. And he directs them against Satan and the, and the devils. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and prevailed not, neither, that is, the dragon failed not, prevailed not, and no more room was found in heaven. He was cast out, that old serpent, he was cast out to the earth, and now has come salvation, the voice says, in the kingdom of our God, and the power, notice, the power of our Christ, of, of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused me for our God day and night. That's a victory. Satan was suffered to appear in heaven in the New Te Old Testament age by God himself with his insults. What's this drunkard doing here? What's that adulterer doing here? What's this murderer doing here? What's that liar doing here? Who served their sentence? Where's thy righteousness, God? God suffered it. Why? To bring glory to his son as the son of man, which is the great insult to Satan who rebelled because I'm not going to be a servant of mere human race and of men. I am a Lord, not a servant. And Christ takes from him who was made a little lower than the angels and crowns him with righteousness and power. And the Son of Man drives Satan from heaven, the accuser of the brethren, and has the victory. And now, beloved, and he's going to renovate heaven. It wasn't perfect, you know. Those in heaven were perfect. But as long as the accuser of the brethren was there, it was not perfect as they had to listen to these insults. How long, O Lord? And now comes the great bridegroom. And the first enemy, he takes care of his death. And the second, whom he proves his power over is Satan and drives him from heaven to have a banquet hall prepared, you see, for his bride. As he gathers his bride in the New Testament age from this life into the other but he goes forth then, having driven Satan from the halls of heaven, that he might renovate it, as, as it were, in preparation for the gathering of his bride, awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. He has more victories 
he has to go forth conquering and to conquer. And that he does, you understand, by the preaching of the gospel as he gathers his church. And that redeemed bride to whom the gospel comes, which gospel he uses to renew them and to save them, that redeemed bride rejoices in this bridegroom as he shows himself and rejoices in his victories. And one might say, why does, does the bridegroom rejoice so much in this one who has redeemed them and has renewed him? And the bride beloved, the church, which is to say the New Testament church, rejoices in him so much because of his altogether loveliness, his beauty to the eyes that have been renewed. And that loveliness, that beauty, does not have to do with looks as such. He is a handsome fellow. Sometimes the eyes of young girls may be turned by the looks of a young man. Who want, wouldn't want to be somehow attached with that young man with his charm and personality and looks who seems to have it all together? That's not the central and most important thing. One's outward appearance which may charm and impress. I'll give you the name of a person, a son of David, who charmed and impressed. Ever hear of Absalom? He turned heads. He charmed half a nation, beloved. And he was a narcissist. He was conceited. He would tell you how good he looked. And he considered himself in the mirror on a regular basis. Who? am like I. And they followed him to their destruction. That son of David in his self-seeking, seeking, take, take, take. Where is the giving and where is the service? Not this bridegroom, beloved. He has a character that's worth writing about, a whole psalm. Ride forth in truth, meekness, and righteousness. Notice, in truth, meekness and righteousness defines the character of the bridegroom of Christ Jesus. Truth has to do not simply with doctrine, he goes forth with doctrinal truth, but with his character itself to be trusted. He makes a promise and he keeps the promise. He lives by his oaths, and they're oaths, of course, of faithfulness and of, of love, a man of integrity, if you will. He is behind closed doors as he is out in public. You can have a man, you know, who out in public is a charmer. Now go behind the closed doors. And he's a tyrant. And he's demeaning. And he's belittling. And he's an abuser if not in, in, in fact, but in, in word. And the marriage is miserable as a result. But not with this great bridegroom, beloved. He is who you see him to be as he is written large upon the page of the scriptures. And so he treats his bride in that way as well, according to his word in truth, according to his vows, for better or for worse, till death us do part, I love you. And meekness, meekness, that's a, Interesting word that he should be called one who is, is meek. But that means he doesn't, he's not one who has pride and simply looks upon status and says, I'll be associated with that one and that one because they have status in society. Beloved, he was a shepherd king, was he not? He looked for those who had need, the poor and the needy, the orphans and the widows, and he ministered to them. This is the great king, beloved, who got on his knees in the upper room and washed the feet of his disciples. And they were astonished and astounded. But he says, I love you and I've come 
to serve your salvation, your washing, and your cleansing, because without it, you cannot come with me to glory. And they suffered it from a certain point of view. But that's his meekness, you see, his willingness to serve in the interest of the gathering of this beloved bride. And then in righteousness, and we don't have time to go in at any length in that whole matter of, of righteousness, but it's so important for a king in a kingdom to be ruled by righteousness, not to be a pleaser of men, and to be bribed, if you will, by the wealthy and the powerful and the nobility. But he exercises righteous judgments. And if one who is a nobody, a widow, an orphan, and they have been wronged, he executes the, the penalty, and he not only gives back the property, but he may well penalize the one who took it from the one improperly and enrich the one who has been taken advantage. He rules in righteousness. A kingdom is established in righteousness, beloved. Unrighteousness simply is, in the end, inviting chaos and civil unrest and rebellion as well. But this one is filled with a righteousness in his judgments and in his his dealings. But that's just one aspect. That's his character. Truth, meekness, righteous, upright, if you will, a, a, one, a, a bridegroom of his word and faithful, even if it re would require death. But as well, the psalm says, grace is poured from his lips. He's a, he's a, he's a bridegroom of gracious words. Not belittling words. They may be words of rebuke and reproof sometimes. They don't belittle and demean. He speaks words of love. He speaks words of encouragement. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Gracious words. And when discouraged, there may be some rebuke. I always think of Elijah under the juniper tree. I've done my part, Lord. Have you done yours? And the Lord doesn't simply... Dismiss him, who are you to challenge me, little man? Takes him to the mountain and speaks to him in the quiet, gentle breeze. Elijah, you have something to learn. Patience, you see. Patience, even the Lord God revealed through Christ Jesus, this great bridegroom. And speaks gracious words, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. It's removed. Let us go on together as one. That great bridegroom. His character, his gracious words, and he is one of great power. We entrust ourselves to the one who goes forth with the sword in his right hand to strike down the enemy with arrows, the sharp arrows that slay the king's enemy one after the other and give to the church in the end her defense and victories. And it may not always seem that way. There's been persecution. There have been those who have suffered death. And yet remember that not one of those whom Christ took unto himself has ever been plucked from his father's hand and perished. They have received the grace to persevere and to make a wonderful witness and even to say, I am honored to end my life in the fashion that my Lord gave his life for me. It's a striking thing, you know, in the 21st century, there is one institution that still remains that can trace its beginnings back to Christ. Not the Roman Empire. It's history. It's in ruins. It's gone. For all their mighty Caesars, Augustus, and all the rest. Babylon, the head of gold, and all the rest. And our nation heads in the same direction and will when all is said and done. The kingdoms of men. But not the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and his church. He still has a bride. Represented by this congregation even. To bear witness to his name, to his grace, to his power, to his glory, to his faithfulness. Indeed, beloved, he is the conquering king. Our enemies, but thanks be to God, he has conquered us also by his love. And now briefly, how are we to respond to them, him, who, to whom we bring homage? Let me just point out 
very briefly, three different ways the psalm says we are to respond to him as his bride. Hearken, O daughter, consider, incline thine ear, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. When one marries a young man, one leaves father's house. And hopefully father and mother let her go and don't interfere as she is to live in the house of her husband and their decisions are to be made concerning her and them. No longer father and mother making decisions about her life, but with her husband decisions are made and they leave father and mother behind to begin a new life and she has a new head under the authority of father anymore, but there's a certain authority of the husband and Here's praying that that husband is one who is a believer and follows after, imitates the great bridegroom Christ Jesus and displays the love of the great bridegroom for himself. But leaving father, the house of father and of mother. Sometimes that cost. I don't know that it costs us so much as we come from believing homes, most of us, but imagine back in the days of the first century, Jews being converted and leaving the house of their Jewish father and mother, almost like those in Singapore leaving the house of idolatrous fathers and mothers, and they leave, and there is the shaking of the fist, and there are almost curses that follow them. You traitor, you've betrayed us, you've left us, we disinherit you, we disown you, we don't even know your name anymore. And that newly converted believer says, but I am another's. I'm not yours. I belong to another. Jesus of Nazareth, my Lord and my Savior, my great bridegroom. He loves me. I love him. And for his sake, as the Psalter number said, I'm willing to forsake the world and every former friend. That kind of response, beloved. Christ first. Following after him. Identifying with him at whatever might be the cost. That's the first calling. Take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself. The second, worship him. Says 15. He is thy Lord. Worship him. And this means simply on Sunday in formal worship that has to do with bowing the knee and submitting to his word. This is the one who has the word of wisdom to give direction, to listen to his word, not only of love, but how to live and to bring the word of God to bear upon one's heart because it's the way of wisdom and blessedness and ultimately of happiness itself with oneself and the family the Lord may give to one. That in the second place is our calling. And then it is to live in hope, to look to the future. In the place of thy fathers shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. With gladness and rejoicing shall be brought they shall enter into the king's palace. Hope for the future. Hope, beloved, because sometimes in this life we have to suffer things. There's a cost and there's difficulties. But we have a hope which is a promise of that which is far greater and better. And then we know whatever we have to suffer, whatever price we have to pay in this life, service of this great bridegroom, his cause, is worth it from every point of view. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because of what's in store for us. That hope. The book of the Revelation. 21. And I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. There was no more that which divides and separates. Lord, haste the day. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, notice, as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And then these astonishing words, and God 
shall wipe away all tears from their faces. The Lord God himself, as it were, I can't say meek, but mercifully, in a condescending way, reaches down and dabs the eyes, removes the tears. No more death, no more sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. Former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write. These words are true and faithful because they come from the one who is the true and faithful. He said, It's done. I am Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give it to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. That's what it means, you see, to be in the embrace of the bridegroom, God's own son. We are his, then his children, also his sons and daughters. And this new Jerusalem is prepared for us and in some ways represents us. Will you be there? That's the great question. Will you be there? Do you hear him? Come unto me. Come unto me. And I will give unto you everlasting life and a glory that outshines the sun. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the gospel itself, for the work of thy Son who is our Lord, his love, and the operations of the Spirit. May we respond to the word of the gospel and give homage to thee for thy salvation, thy faithfulness, and thy grace, and the gift of thy Son, our Lord and Savior, Amen.